hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Ben, how are you tonight? I'm battling my own body's slow recovery from dental surgery. But it doesn't matter because we have so much to record, so we're sticking to the schedule. We're gonna be okay. You've got meds, I've got meds, aka bear, for this headache. We're gonna be fine. We're doing it live. So what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about... Our Sky 2. What a journey. Ben, explain to the people the concept of Our Sky. Welcome back, my boyfriend. That's it. (laughs) JoJo started this off and summed it up perfectly. Our Sky originally served as a sort of epilogue project for the initial run of GMMTV BLs. In the first run, we had the Puppy Honey Crew with Off Gun, the Sodas Pair with Kristen Singto, the In Sun Pair from My Dear Loser, Edge of 17, Taeyeon New from Kiss the Series before Dark Blue Kiss, and uh, Drake and Frank from My T, aka Kushir, my boy. So that's the concept of our sky. So when GMMTV put out its 2023 offerings last year, Surprise! Our Sky 2. They're giving us epilogues for 2020, 2021, and some 2022 shows. We're going to dive into these. With the original Our Sky, it was kind of chaotic. So every crew kind of just did what felt right for their characters. Like Pete and Kyle basically went on a date. That was mostly uncomplicated, something their characters needed. Off Gun did a body swap, which was just so they could let Gun pick on off for a bit. In and Sun got closure. Unsurprising, off was on that one. Because you're my boy, they just kind of did just a hot mess that was weirdly endearing, which is exactly what their show was. And Sawdust did like the, the next most logical thing for RT and Kung Pop, which was them kind of saying goodbye as they were heading into a long distance form of their relationship because Kung Pop was pursuing higher schooling outside of Thailand, if I remember correctly. In a similar vein, this particular Our Sky run that we're going to be talking about very much captured what I think the core spirit of the original work was. And each team came back to it, for the most part, with something to say that was consistent with their original offerings. We went 
Never Let Me Go, Star in My Mind, The Eclipse, Vice Versa, My School President, A Boss and a Babe, Bad Buddy, and then A Tale of Thousand Stars. I also think that the airing order was very interesting, and maybe we'll get a little time to talk about how they chose to air what they did when they did. This Arse Guy, I think, wanted to lean a little bit into the crack. Every single outing had a little bit of a crack element to it, and I quite liked that. I enjoyed that. I had fun with that, for the most part. And we'll get to the ones where I did not enjoy that. I do think that the Our Sky project leans into fan service, and not in an inherently negative way. They want the people who enjoyed the show to have fun coming back to the show. And it's been notable for me that for the most part, I found that if someone really liked the original show, they also really liked their Our Sky outing. For those of you who've listened to me or followed me, you know what shows I didn't like or despise when they aired. And unsurprisingly, my takes are fairly consistent. Maybe it's the corners of the internet that I've been perusing, which you always tell me to stop looking at. I feel like the more that people liked the OG show, the more upset they were with the Arse Guy. Maybe that's just the people are being wrong on the internet corners of the internet that I like to occasionally look through. (laughs) I I don't go there. delve into it. Let's start talking in some specifics. So if we're going from worst to first, my worst, without a doubt, was the Vice Versa Arse Guy. I'm on record as not having watched Vice Versa because I was not interested in Vice Versa. I have tried and failed so many times with Jitsi Rain stories that I knew that I was not going to enjoy this one. So I never watched the original, but for the sake of the podcast... I watched every single Horse Guy, including this one, except I did not finish this one. (laughs) I started watching it. I was mostly annoyed. And then something happened that just, I just said, oh, absolutely not. And I stopped watching it. So the trope, the the crack trope for the vice versa Horse Guy, the fanfic-y, fanservice-y trope is Atticid. I think it's Puan. Puan and Tali have been together for a while now. They're working hard, working a lot. They don't have as much time for each other. And so Tali comes up with the idea of doing a month of special days where they pay very close attention to each other and they do special things together. And it's a really sweet idea. And honestly, if that had been it, I would have been fine. There would have been no problem. But then they add a kid. And the way that they add a kid is what pisses me off. One of their friends essentially delivers his nephew into the care of these strangers. So that they can play house. But it's also like a trick that Puen is playing on Tele. Because this kid just shows up at the house. And... Tilly thinks that it might be 
his kid like the the setup of vice versa has always as i i've said before every time i think i know what vice versa is about ben lets me know that i don't actually know what vice versa is about <laughs> but there's some way that tilly thinks that this kid is his somehow would you like the context for why he believes that kid is his sure hit me with it so they basically spend two years in the other world with Nanad and Ohm's characters and their bodies. Ohm's character, Tess, is an asshole who absolutely ruined Tolay's life for the two years he was in his body. He sabotaged and ruined every personal and professional relationship that Tolay had. When he got back to his own body, he had to spend years fixing his own life, which sucks because while he was in Tess's body, he basically fixed Tess's life. It's really upsetting for me that Huen, who claims to love Talay, who watched him suffer for all of the things that Tess did to his life, would genuinely let Talay believe that Tess saddled him with the responsibility of an unplanned kid because he thinks his boyfriend doesn't pay enough attention to him but he makes his boyfriend work outside in a tent in Thailand to do graphic design on an iMac. You were really, really mad about the tent. <laughs> I remember when we were watching this, you were really pissed about the tent. I'm, I'm not over it. It's humid in Thailand. Why would he be outside with a Mac? Oh my God. It's frustrating because on the one hand, I understand the impulse of, like, how do we get these guys to consider a new form of domesticity together? But, like, why do we have to use an actual child? Why can't we use, like, a dog or a cat? Not coercing a child into letting strangers bathe him and treat him like he's their son and sleep with him in their bed. It's so, so weird and really unhinged. And it made me like a bunch of characters, even less than I already did. It was aggravating. It's frustrating because Puin did this through the whole show. Like, he doesn't trust Talay. He lies to him. He manipulates him. Talay and he are both in entertainment, and Talay was against a huge deadline the night of Puin's birthday, and he couldn't take a break from his work to meet his deadline to go do flirty boyfriend things with Puen. Puen expressed this frustration directly the next day in a way that I thought was totally valid. And then Talay goes, you are correct. Here is the plan I've come up with for us to make sure that we don't just take our own relationship for granted and keep working at it. And they have a really great month doing cute boyfriend date things while trying to maintain their careers. And so the whole secret baby felt completely unnecessary. Like, we need something to happen for the plot to justify Jimmy, Neo, O, and C hanging out together. So we have to introduce a secret baby, I guess. I hated it. Like, I I just... Like, people joke that I don't often give low scores because I don't usually watch crap. Like, if something's, like, really, really bad out of the gate, I'm like, oof, I don't have time for this. And I'll usually drop it these days because I got too much to do. But, like, I gave the show a three because I was deeply put off 
by the coercion of a child and the audacity of it all. Because, like, you know what your boyfriend went through because of Tess. Why would you pull on that really traumatic thread from five years ago and make him believe that Tess had done this to him as well? Knowing that Tolay has a strong sense of responsibility and would, of course, try to do right by a potential child. Like, it's hard to even talk about, like, any of the cute relationship things that may have come out of this because, like, they should divorce. I did not enjoy this when it was revealed that the kid was trick. I turned it off and I did not watch the end. For every special of our Sky. I gave it a drama score and a crack score. My drama score for this was a negative five because I was entirely unamused, like wholly unamused. This is not what I came to see in any way. I don't care if the kid is cute. I don't care if they're all cute together. They're literally using a child to fix their relationship. And explicitly, the child's parents did not know that this was happening. Which makes it worse. So I gave it a drama score of a minus five, which is, of course, an overreaction. But it's still getting a zero. Crack score, I gave it a 10. Because it is actual crack. Like, this is probably the crackiest thing that happened in all of our sky. But it's not enjoyable as crack. So let's give it a five for crack. Zero for drama, five for crack, gives it a score of 2.5, which sounds about correct. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Pass. Not good. Tensor chops, one chop. (laughs) Two chops. (laughs) Let's leave vice versa behind in the dustbin where it belongs and let's move on to the next on the list star in my mind whoo and i can't even remember what happened i was so bored watching these episodes like dead bored star in my mind is also a show that i did not watch the og show so i had no idea what it was about and was going in blind and i think that i was correct to not watch the og show because If it was anything as boring as this, I didn't need to see it. So the Star in My Mind special is basically just the gang going on a little vacation together. And then New tries to subvert the you're together now. Let's throw in a jealousy element bit. Like you put a note on here that the trope for this one is trick your friends into going on vacation. So their friends try to tease Dao Nua into believing that maybe Cobb Clune has eyes for some girl. And Dao Nua gets jealous about this, and then a fight ensues and the friends get all upset. But we and the audience know that the guys are faking this fight. They knew what their friends were up to, but they were kind of flaking on this vacation. So he uses this fake fight to force them to go on vacation with him. Whatever. Like, I think the part of this that was cute was New just throwing away the whole jealousy trope for BL. And then having 
the gay characters just be like, yeah, this is stupid. Anyway, we're going to absolutely use this against them because these bitches will not buy their tickets and I'm going to force them to. Like that part was kind of fun. I'm in my breakup era with new right now. I can see again him trying to do something here. New is currently over BL. He's tired of it. You can feel that in Star in my mind. Like he's completely bored with all of this. And so what could have been like at least a cute trip just looks like five straight dudes hanging out in the woods for like an hour. I think my notes say it's two hours of a bunch of dudes vibing without vibes. Yeah, like it wasn't great. And like, I don't really like coming for actors like that, but Dunk is still uncomfortable with on-screen intimacy, or at least it feels like he is, particularly compared to June, who does not suffer from being camera shy when it comes to this kind of work. And so while I've seen them in behind-the-scenes stuff and their variety stuff, and Jung and Dunk are great bros, I'm still struggling with Dunk as a romantic lead because he doesn't kiss well. New didn't even phone this in. Like, I think he sent an email. Maybe it was a snail mail. This was just, it was boring, which I think might be worse than bad. What do we even say about it? Nothing. There is nothing to say. Like, Pawan was there. He didn't kiss anybody. <laughs> I mean, that's really all that you can say about it. It was a waste of Pawan. Probably the only thing that I enjoyed about this was Jung's several pissy faces. When Cab Cluin is salty because all his straight friends keep interrupting his gay couple time to hang out when all he wants to do is make out and like the pissy faces that he makes are delightful and they're the only reason this has a score i give it a drama score of three because what was it even about and i give it a crack score of four and all four of those points are for june's pissy faces which i thoroughly enjoyed so it was a 3.5 for me not because it was bad but because it was boring I think a show has to be offensive to me in some way for me to go lower than six. Star in my mind is not. It's just boring. Because I've been in these gay streets a long time, I've been offended a lot. And I will accept boring. It's a six. It's forgettable. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And we will not. We're going to move on to the actual fun and interesting ones now. There's a definite quality bar in our sky too. There are vice versa and star in my mind, which are below the quality bar. And then there's everything else, which is above the quality bar. Now we're talking about games of inches here. Never let me go. So the never let me go fanfic trope for our sky was they did a time travel story. That was also a... Fated Mates? That was also a Fated Mates and also a role reversal and also like a body hopping. Like there there was a lot going on here. It was not boring. Everybody 
was clearly having a fabulous time making this. And I actually really enjoyed it. It was two episodes. I could have watched maybe four to six episodes of this. No problem. This was actually incredibly interesting. It was a lot of fun. Powin and Pond especially clearly had a great time. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Pond had a fabulous time. So the plot of the Never Let Me Go special, you go ahead. All right. So it's been a couple of years since we left the boys and Never Let Me Go. And Nung Diao has been studying elsewhere. He's coming back to Thailand and Palm has quietly been setting up shop in Bangkok so that when Nung Diao comes back to Thailand, he can be closer to him. He doesn't want to just stay out by the beach because he wants to see his boyfriend more often. Nung Diao was a little bit caught off guard by this. I didn't like him making decisions for them. They run into a fortune teller who tells them that if they don't fix what was originally broken, they won't make it in this life either. And then the fantasy hijinks kick in where they are sent back in time to their original pairing into the bodies of their past selves. And in their past, in their first past together, where they become a couple, Palm is the rich lord and Nung Diao is essentially sold to him as a slave. Also, Pawen is there in an earlier version of his character. And so they have to play their roles. Palm is having way too much fun bossing Nung Diao around and also just trying to have sex with him in the past. Over the course of this, they end up realizing that they have to help Pawin's character hook up with Mark Pawin's character. And so all of the girlies who've been waiting for that ship to reunite were fed. Nini is correct. Like, this ended up being really fun because we got to see Palm and Nung Diao kind of become, like, the gays who have it together for other gays. It had that crack story, but there was also another story going on alongside the crack, which I really enjoyed, building on Nung Diao and Palm's actual OG series story, which is that... Nung Diao believes that Palm should make his life about himself, that he should make his decisions about the things that he wants to do without considering Nung, and that they can still be together, but Palm shouldn't plan his life around him. When he comes back to Bangkok, it's to tell Palm essentially that he's decided that he's going to stay away for a longer period of time. He's going to do graduate school as well. And this is actually a conflict between them that sort of leads into the whole time travel thing. But it's actually a really interesting conflict between them because it builds on their series story in a really interesting way. I enjoyed watching them navigate it and figure it out while they were also navigating and figuring out how the hell to get out of the past. I mean, the internal logic of the story just about holds together. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's emotional. If he looks at you for seven seconds, he's into you, and we're all, like, rooting for this under an umbrella. It's fun. It's cute. It's got a little bit of a message to it. It's 
enjoyable. The characters feel like themselves. At one point, we get a little montage of smash cuts of Nung and Pam. They alternate crying over each other's dead bodies through the ages. One of them definitely felt like a nod to Off's work where Jojo was poking fun at him. <laughs> they were actually dressed like Jim and Wen in Moonlight Chicken, complete with Puin wearing sunglasses, his corpse wearing sunglasses at night when he's dead and Pon crying over him. It was really funny. It was it was delightful. That little that little smash cut montage was really fun and actually upped the crack score a little bit. Time travels crack, no way about it. I was fully going to give it a good crack score anyway, but that little sequence upped the crack score by at least a point. It was just very funny. And then watching Powin over-exaggerate his craps and fall in love with Mark Pahoon's character, who's like a jewelry seller at the market. And then when they come back to the present and he's Poom again, they meet Poom at the house, which has been maintained. The Lord's house has been maintained throughout the ages. Because it had been passed down to his ancestors' family now because they were all, like, gay besties together. <laughs> yeah, and, like, Poom and Mark Pahoon's character are together in this life, too. And they're really cute. And Poom's like, yeah, I was a shit to you in high school. I'm sorry about that. It was nice. It was fun. It was enjoyable. I gave it a drama score of 7.5. I think that's reasonable for it. I gave it a crack score of 8.5. So it works out to an eight for me, which I liked. I liked it. I really liked a lot of this. I liked how much fun Puin and Pond had in the traditional garb that they were wearing. I like how much fun they had with how often they had to be shirtless. I really enjoyed them writing vows to each other in the past because they didn't know if they would be able to escape basically fully committed to each other. That was really beautiful and not something I expected from Jojo. I was really surprised that Jojo did something that genuinely tender. That really worked for me. I give it an eight. It's one of those eights where it's like, if you liked Never Let Me Go, this is going to make it feel a little bit better because the idea that the drama of Never Let Me Go is yet another instance of these two characters trying to be with each other across space and time is super romantic. And that's the kind of shit I love in my big dramas. And I was not expecting this particular show to make me go, wow. And look back at the, the original show and go, okay, I can see that. It was deeply enjoyable. If you liked Never Let Me Go Enough and you feel mildly dissatisfied by it and you just kind of want some closure to walk away from, watch the special. I felt very good about Palm and Nung Diao by the end of that because they felt a little bit more grown. And I kind of like where they left the characters with Palm just being like, whatever, I have a rich boyfriend and I've worked very hard. I'm just going to go hang out with you in Germany for a little while and then we'll figure it out from there. And I'm like, more power to you, bro. It seemed like, yes, that they were just going to vibe and enjoy each other. And after everything that those two went through, Sure. That seems like a great place to leave them. Also in the, for me, eight category, 
So there's a tie here, a boss and a babe. This kind of surprised me because I ended up with the OG show being really disappointed by where we landed with it. But I really liked the R Sky. This is a little bit weird because I think in terms of whenever the rest of you hear this, we're actually, I think, releasing this before the episode where we talk about a boss and a babe. So spoilers a bit for that particular episode, but uh, we were less than impressed with a boss and a babe. For sure. However, we actually had a decent time with their Sky outing. Nini, why don't you walk us through the setup for this particular outing? So the fanfic trope for the boss and a babe outing of our sky is, I guess, walk a mile in my shoes kind of thing. Gun and Cher are happy together. They're sweet, loving boyfriends. But the office is in shambles because Gunn is stressed out and he's stressing everybody at work out. And because Cher knows everybody at work because he used to work there, he has been hipped to the fact that his man is stressing everybody out. And so he goes on a mission to try to get his man to stop stressing everybody at work out. So trying to make him understand that he needs to dial it the fuck back And the way that he eventually comes up with, after trying a few other ways, is that they are going to spend a day walking a mile in each other's shoes. So he is going to spend a day being the boss, and Gunn is going to spend a day being the intern. So that Gunn gets an idea of the stresses that his employees go through. And sure, it's just like, whatever, I'll just be the boss. And Gunn is like, oh, it's not as easy as you think. And it actually turns out really fun and interesting to watch them do this. Of course, it's a weird, horny sex thing because everything is a weird, horny sex thing with these two. But <laughs> it's it's fun. It's light. It's interesting. It's enjoyable. It's a strong conflict. It's a stronger conflict than we get in the actual OG series. It works. I think it's that because it's so short, Mew doesn't really have time to fuck it up. (laughs) So, like, I was frustrated because Guns being kind of a difficult boss, but being fairly reasonable about why he's a difficult boss. He's like... We work in a difficult industry where we spend a great deal of time working on something and then we release it to the public and then it can flop. And so I have been funding people's jobs for anywhere from two to 12 months working on a project. And we really need strong turnaround for this because these people's jobs are riding on the success of this. So they do need to take their job seriously. And when they are given feedback or are given specific directives, they need to accomplish those directives. There's like really interesting tension there between like the boss's perspective of y'all can be mad at me, but you want me to cut your checks, right? Versus bro, we are not going to work well under these fucking conditions. Like that tension was delivered really well. Gunn's perspective comes through in a way 
that doesn't feel pandering to anyone. And I was like, he is a little bit off base in the way he talks to people, but the things he's concerned about are valid for where he sits. It just pissed me off low key because like we never figured out what the, what times whole deal was in the original show, like his friend who used to be part of the company. And it feels like that was his job here was to be like the bridge between gun and the team to translate guns, directives and frustrations into directives for the team so they could accomplish them and to keep the team motivated. And like Cher was helping with that for a while, but now that Cher is like doing other stuff, like that has gone away. That's the biggest thing with this one. Like this was such a solid concept that it made me even more annoyed at how the OG show just sort of fumbled every thread that they were holding. Yeah, I have to agree. Like the workplace conflict on this was really strong and solid and the workplace stuff in the OG show was kind of weak. And part of the workplace stuff that was great in this was showing that, yeah, Gunn does need a balancing force at work. But also, aside from that, surprisingly, Cher is not an idiot. Like Cher is actually pretty competent. He's not like ready clearly to be the boss of a place like this but he's not an idiot like one of the things that happens is that gun tries to set him up a little bit by having like a client come in and try to like have a discussion and talk to him about like partnering on a game or something and like talking about ideas and all that kind of stuff and at first you think that share is gonna blow it but then he delivers He comes into the meeting, you know, he takes a minute to get his bearings and understand what's going on, but then he has actual good ideas and he can speak to the people in a way that works for the business. So it shows that they could probably, at some point in the future, after Cher has learned more, they could probably run the business together because I think that they bring the different perspectives that's required. But just like Ben said, that also makes me like really mad that we didn't get more of the time stuff in the OG series, because to me, that feels like this was what time's role was. And that just completely got cast aside. So on the one hand, I thought this was actually pretty good. But on the other hand, it made me think even less of the OG series. And I was already struggling with the OG series. And that's where we are. It sucks because, like, again, like, horse and book are good. And the cast of this particular show, very good. They hold together an otherwise weak show, but, man, you just really want to see what that cast looks like when they have a really good show under their belt. Yeah, and this gives you, like, a kind of an end to that. So my score, this was drama score of eight because I thought it was a solid conflict, well executed. I give it a crack score of eight because quite honestly, once the whole rule reversal thing started, like if I worked for a guns company, I would have taken like vacation until that was over because it was just, it was a little too bring your kinks to work for me personally. (laughs) 
I would have been like, yeah, I don't need to see this. I'm going to take a day off. And tomorrow <laughs> when I come back, hopefully everything will be normal. Combined, like, drama score, eight, crack score, eight, average, eight. What did you give it? I gave it an eight. We were joking with some of our other friends about how most of us gave it an eight. And I think it was Jenny Moonbeam who was like, we all gave it an eight, but these are all very different eights. <laughs> Yes, that is definitely true. <laughs> These are different eights that we are giving it. My eight is like, damn it. Now I got to go back and revise my score of the OG series and put it even lower. <laughs> Moving along from the eights, and now we're starting to get into the top of tops, the top, top top tops of the our sky pantheon for me and next up is the eclipse but i'm gonna need you to give the people what we're talking about here the eclipse picks up it feels like the summer after the boys have graduated from high school so they're away from supalo we're not going to deal with any of the supalo nonsense anymore it's just the two couples Watt and Pawin's character for some reason, because he's always palling around them. They're getting together to help Watt shoot for a film project that he wants to submit to a competition. But we pick up originally with Ak and Ayan, who are doing boyfriend things, and we are seeing the ongoing deprogramming of Ak continuing. And over the course of the filming for this, we see that Ak and Ayan are basically stand-ins for Gulf's very complex ideas about the way our private and public lives inform each other and how both are inherently political. Ak and Ayan, over the course of this, are having a struggle about whether or not they should care what other people think. Ak thinks that to be part of a civil society, you do have to care about how your actions and behaviors impact other people. Ayan, who has seen what a civil society does to people, thinks that that is bullshit and that he should be more concerned about himself and the people he cares about and not the nebulous feelings of others, and then calls Act directly out at one point about how his concern for others turned him into the worst version of a cop possible. And it gets really ugly when they're working on Watt's film project. These two are having a truly fundamental struggle about whether or not the two of them are even compatible, because they do not see eye to eye Politically, you get the sense that Ayan hoped that once freed from the Supalo prefect thing, Ak would start to see things more his way. And Ak hoped that Ayan would stop fighting with him so much because Ak really just wants to do soft, cuddly things with his boyfriend. But Ayan gets off on fighting with Ak. <laughs> and so he's always antagonizing him for sex reasons. It's one of those early relationship conflicts when you're still figuring out how to be with each other. 
when you're dating at the beginning, you put your best foot forward. In this case, with the two of them, they put their absolute worst foot forward when they were getting together. But there's still that thing about the version of you when you're courting is different somewhat than the version of you when you're not courting. For them, the issue is that the version of them when they were courting was exactly who they are, but they didn't think that that was who they were. So, like you said, Ayan really thought that out of the pressure cooker of Superlow, Ak would be a different person. And then he's like coming to realize, no, this is really just who he is. And Ak is having that same realization about Ayan. They have to decide, essentially, and they do decide via Watts film whether what they are to each other is worth bridging that gap between them the answer that they come to is yes, it is in a really phenomenal scene that I enjoyed so much. Let me tell you, First and Kao Tung are just really, really good together. Like, it's amazing how they can play these two characters coming to a precipice of fundamental political disagreement to the point that they looked at each other and they were like, is this really who I'm going to be with? And you can see this almost weird resignation as they turn to face each other and embrace, where there are no easy answers to this. They don't see eye to eye politically on a lot of really fundamental things, and yet they still want to choose each other each time. And that is delivered so well. Like, it's hard to watch the eclipse. With your brain off. I watched a lot of people try to do it during the original show and they struggled because it is not a brains off show. Golf has a lot to say about the state of their country and is using whatever platform they have to voice some of these ideas, most notably about how sitting on your phone writing mean tweets is not action that you need to get into the work. You have to get into the streets with other people. You have to participate in the work, even if it's just in the support of getting the people who do do the work, the tools and food they need to do the work. And it's really fascinating that even in this little two-part special, which as far as some people thought was just First and Kyle Tung making out for two hours because these boys kissed a lot in this special. They managed to say a lot. Golf managed to express their deep love of Thai cinema with the references that Watt was pulling out. They also managed to get across how much these two boys really like each other. And it was kind of fun to see Ak and Khan working their way out of their internalized homophobia. Like, it was not surprising to me that Ak and Khan wanted to do a lot of touching with their boyfriends. I really liked how it all came together, how golf used their love of not just Thai cinema, but queer cinema to sort of pull the threads together of the fight that Ak and Ayan were having the petty fight and the serious fight, because they were having a fight on two levels. They were having 
a petty fight about, well, maybe not petty, but they were having a surface level fight about Ayan paying attention to Ak and being lovey-dovey and soft with him versus Ayan wanting Ak to be tougher with him because that's what he likes. And then that going to the deep level of the political. And then on top of that, that being pulled together by the concept of film. And then even throwing in for us a little side story about what and what film means to him and how he's not necessarily supported by his family, but he kind of is a little bit, but mostly not. And how he has things to say and he feels strongly about those things. Like they managed to do a lot with very little in this special. And I really, really enjoyed it. It was very deep for what it was. Very thinkable piece. I really liked it. And then on top of that, they also get to have a little bit of coming of age nostalgia moments about leaving high school and moving into the real world. There's so much packed into those two hours. I was really impressed with how much they managed to get in there and have it feel organic. I was incredibly impressed by this entire outing. I liked the special on its own. I liked it in connection to the OG show. I liked it as a continuation of the OG show. I liked the things that it had to say and the way that it carried through its themes. I was impressed by how much it managed to fit in. I gave it a drama score of 9.5. I really thought it was very, very good. There was singing, so she took half a point. (laughs) (laughs) I give it a a crack score of 8. The trope really was, I guess, secret surprise, because the frame that this is all put in is Ion preparing a surprise for Ak's birthday. But it's a secret surprise where he's pretending that he doesn't remember and he's not going to celebrate Oxford Day, which is a little weird, which is why I took the half point off, really, because I hate that secret surprise trope. It's one of those things where I don't really like it for Ak, but it fits with Ayan sort of like Ayan is the queer kid who reads too much theory, like he knows more than you. And so he doesn't always see you specifically. Like, he outs Tua in the first show, thinking he's helping him. Like, he kind of is, but, like, he outs Tua and oversteps. And it's the same thing here with Ak. Like, he wants to surprise Ak. Like, I don't think you should be surprising Ak because so much of his Supalo experience is about being guided by the things that are not being said, that he's supposed to just interpret. If you're trying to deprogram him, you need to not do that to him. And the reason why like, I, I mostly let it go is because as dense as Ion can kind of be because he's too fucking smart for his own good, when Ak admitted in like the first 15 minutes of the show that he hoped that they were going to do cute boyfriend frolicking in the fields and taking pictures together, and Ion's like, oh, I thought you were just kidding about that. And Ak was like, no. I, I was serious. It's like, all right, well, shit, grab your camera. And they frolicked. <laughs> he gave his boyfriend the cute boyfriend shit he wanted to do, even if he teased him a little bit about it first. I did like that, too. I like that they don't have it together yet, but 
they're willing to listen and they're willing to do what it takes, I think. But like I said, I'm knocking out a half a point for the secret surprise because I hate that trope. The crack score is an eight because there's these set of dream sequences, which are homages to Thai film and queer film. And I thought they were delightful. There's the Brokeback Mountain one. And then there's the Golden Eagle one, which is a Thai film. Then there's the Ong Bak one, which is another Thai film. And then there's another. If you have not seen Ong Bak and you like action film, please go see Ong Bak. I have not watched Ong Bak. Of course, Ben has because he's a boy. I am a boy. Tony Jaa is amazing. (laughs) I really like that golf gets to throw that in there as well. And it's fun. The Golden Eagle one especially is delightful. (laughs) It really is. So that's 9.5 and an 8. Let's call that an 8.75. Ooh, the maths is coming back. It's coming back. An 8.75 for the Eclipse. Ben, what'd you give it? I gave it a 9 because it's really coherent. And that mattered a lot for me because we had watched a lot I don't remember the exact order, but I remember just not being like necessarily like great at this point because a bunch of them were kind of stuffed or boring. And this wasn't. I was fully engaged the whole time because golf has such clear ideas in their work and they're all working together at various levels. They really wanted us to not miss Moving on from the eclipse onto the next rung on the ladder up, my school president. So the my school president fan fiction trope was AU, alternate universe for all of the characters. I had a fucking blast with this. Ben, explain to the people what happened. I'm going to pre-react to the criticism, unfortunately. My school president is a high school story about pursuing your long-term crush in the final year of your high school experience. There was no way my school president was going to get an epilogue story. So instead, they flipped the seats of a bunch of the characters. So... In this version of the My School President story, Gun is the school president, and Tin is the member of the school band, this time named Lion instead of Chinchilla. Instead of Tucson being the school president's best friend, they keep Poor, who is his bestie in this. Tucson is a member of the band. Sound and Win switch positions in this, where Sound is the long-term member of the band, Wynn is the new hot boy who shows up who they recruit. They also decide to flip Yo and Pat in the story with each other, even though they're still both on the band. Gim becomes, she becomes the principal, and Pat Janie becomes the operator of the milk ice cream bar. And in the process of this, like the same beats from the show We still hit them, but they play out very differently because the core characterization of these couples don't shift 
which forces us to reckon with certain aspects of the characters that kind of get glossed over in the idealism of the original My School President run. Like, for example, Tin is so much braver than Gun. Gun is kind of a coward who is gripped by an intense sense of self-doubt. And it starts off almost immediately. Like, there's some political commentary with the way Gunn is selected as the school president. 250 votes were cast by parents to make Gunn the president instead of going through the school voting process instead. Which works as a quick shorthand for the show, but also works as a commentary on Thai parliamentary politics. So, like, he's not the school president because he wants to help Tin. He's just sort of pushed into the position by his mom. And so the moments that they hit along the way, like the dancing together scene, that plays out differently because Gun backs off and ends up dancing with someone else. The whole questions thing they did to get close to film the thing goes differently because Gun won't ask Tin directly, but Tin does ask him, but Gun backs down. It was interesting because, like, Everyone still chose each other. But, like, in a weird way, Tucson and Poor were the strong couple of this outing, anchoring for the rest of them. Like, in the original show, Tin and Gun are so obviously together that the force of their mutual attraction sort of just creates opportunity for the rest of these relationships to bubble up. This time around, Tucson and Poor are working together in the background to help Ten and Gun get together because they want to come out as a couple, which I thought was an interesting switch up as well. I really enjoyed that despite shifting the characters around in terms of their positions and roles, that the cores of the characters remained exactly the same. And you see how the same people living a different life would become a different person. Like you talk about Gunn being kind of a coward and he is kind of a coward even in the OG show. Tin's the brave one and Tin has to be the brave one because Gunn's the one who's going to back down. But also the gun of the alternate universe, the multiverse of cuteness, as it is called, the gunner of the alternate universe hasn't spent his whole life on stage being judged and knocked back and developing that thick skin that he talks to Tin about in the OG series. So he is much less resilient than the gun of the OG series. And that makes a difference in how he navigates his crush on Tin. Similarly to that, Tin in the AU has not had the strictness of the OG Potgeny forced on him the whole time. The strictness and the straight-lacedness because things are a little looser for him. And so he feels more able to take the ball and run with it when he realizes how he feels. They redo the scene of them 
spending the night at the school and walking around. And this is where Tin turns to Gun is like, look, do you like me? Which is something Tin wouldn't necessarily have asked in the OG series. But then Gun, faced with the opportunity to actually lock it down with his crush, he says, no, and he runs away. <laughs> Which is not a thing that Tin would have done. If Gun had ginned up the the actual courage to ask Tin if he liked him, Tin would have been like, taken a deep breath and been like, hell yeah, let's date. It's really interesting watching how they take the same characters and just by moving their position in the story, they create a story that's different. And yet all the people still choose each other. They basically state the big idea at one point. The gun character says maybe in another lifetime, things would have gone better. And the poor and two son of this universe slap that idea down and go, yeah, but you're not in those universes. You're in this one. Make the most of the life you have. I really enjoyed this outing. I enjoyed what they took the opportunity of the Our Sky special to say and to do. I agree with you. I don't think that an epilogue would have worked. My school president is so of its setting. I do not think that moving the boys into college and following them there, I don't feel like I would have been interested in seeing that because that's not the point of my school president. My tagline for my school president was perfect high school romance. And I think that's where it should stay. Okay, so my drama score for my school president was 9.5. And I took off a half point because nobody made out. And I'm sorry, I am shallow. I wanted somebody to kiss in this special. I didn't care who, just somebody. So I took off half a point. But the crack score is a 10 because, I mean, it's an AU. There is nothing crackier than that. So that works out to what, like a 9.75? Yeah, I'm good with that. So. I gave this one a nine because it was a little heady and my school president is not a really heady show for me, but the whole AU concept was, and I liked it, but in terms of like recommending it to the people who liked my school president, it's kind of hard because they wanted more of what they loved in my school president. And this is not exactly that. So I gave it a nine, but I'm also a Nini. Like nobody kissed in this one. And again, young actors, I'm totally fine with them not kissing, but their characters in the original show have really specific kisses. And if they were more experienced and veteran actors, we would have gotten a different type of kiss from these characters because they are coming at each other very differently. And we don't get to offer that particular comparison here. So, minor knock for me as well. We didn't even get to talk about the best part, which was them doing a fake music video for a fake Auf song that incorporated Auf's top three hits (laughs) in the music videos, which are He's Coming to Me, Bad Buddy, and A Tale of Thousand Stars. We didn't even talk about that. Tew and Poor got to do A Tale of Thousand Stars. Sound and Win get to do Bad Buddy. 
and Gun and Tin get to do He's Coming to Me. So they, they paid homage to their granddaddy in Off Nopranach, Chywin Wall. Three of the greatest GMMTV BLs. And also the ones that sort of set the stage for my school president. On to the main event. And the main event of Our Sky 2 was Auf Nopranak giving the finger to GMMTV and saying, fuck you, I get four episodes to talk about what I want. And what I want to talk about is queer elders coming to terms with themselves. And I'm going to use anybody I want to talk about that, a.k.a. the bad buddy, Tale of a Thousand Stars crossover event. Ben, break it down for the people. Whereas every other one of these projects, except for My School President, was in many ways an epilogue, this is a mixture of... It's an epilogue or a post-show story for Tien and Pupa, but for Pran and Pat, It's set between Bad Buddy episode 11 and Bad Buddy episode 12. It's the senior year for Pat and Pran. They are still closeted and having to keep up the architecture engineering rivalry, though it looks like they've tried to smooth things over over the years because most of the beef is about who's bringing brooms to the charity project now. But they're having some consternation because both groups need to put on a play as part of their class president activities. And after the normal bad buddy hijinks kick in, Pran reveals that he wants to adapt Tian's diary, A Tale of Thousand Stars, into a play for the architecture school. Once they decide to follow this route, Their teacher says that because they don't have permission from the people whose story this actually is, they need to go find them and get said permission. So Pran decides that they're going to go to Papandau to talk to them directly, tell them how important it is to them that they want to tell this particular story. Before they can leave, Pat is forced to hang out with his engineering buddies, and because he has to pretend like he doesn't like Pran... He says something akin to that Pran guy, he'd be useless without me. I'm always having to help him. Pran felt some kind of way about that and decided to leave Pat behind and go to Papandau himself, much to his own chagrin, because he loves that boy and got so nervous when he was walking around by himself without Pat. And over the course of these four episodes, Pat and Pran learn a little bit more about themselves and their dynamic, but mostly they really help Tian and Pupa work past some really fundamental struggles that they were having as a couple that Pat and Pran realized that they had moved past a long time ago. This crossover really elevates both works because Alf is obsessed with the idea that queer people make each other better. And 
by the end of this, we as a fandom seem rather split about it because those of us who liked both A Tale of Thousand Stars and Bad Buddy were able to appreciate how both stories impact each other. But it seems like if you were really only into one of those stories, you resented the crossover in one way. I think that's one reaction to it, but I mean, we've seen among the clowns, even people who were really into Bad Buddy, but not so into Tale of a Thousand Stars, really coming around on Tiana and Poopa by the end of the special. I, I don't think we have like a vice versa situation in that, and we can discuss all the reasons that might be, but I think that definitely the crossover has made people who maybe didn't appreciate A Tale of a Thousand Stars as much really appreciate A Tale of a Thousand Stars and Tiana and Poopa more now. So where do you want to pick up with the beginning of this discussion? I think I want to start with the idea one of our fellow clowns first espoused and really sort of set me off on this thought process that this special, this whole crossover is all about Poopa because of all four characters in the OG shows, the only character who didn't really get an arc was Poopa. This is Poopa's arc. How do you feel about that as an idea, as a concept? Since we're going to start here, I'm going to come out swinging. Do it. If you hate that Poopa is the focus character of this particular special, I need you to examine whether or not you actually care about gay men. Poopa is a poor, hyper-masculine, closeted gay man who's older than the other characters. Like He's about 35 at this point. There are so many queer people out there that you're never going to know about because they cannot live their mm-hmm. lives loudly. We're recording in June right now. Pride Month, Poopa is not going to show up at Bangkok Pride because, one, he's not coming to Bangkok, and two, that's just not the place where he feels safe. It's not the place where he feels seen. It's not where all of the quiet gays are going to go or where the gays who have to be closeted for one reason or another are going to be. And it's easy to forget them because they're boring or they're less fun. I like that this story ends up being about how do we help Poopa break out of his own shell a little bit and let Tian love him just a little bit more. Poopa is this sort of stoic, very stern character. I mean, they lampoon that a little bit in the OG series for Tale of a Thousand Stars. And they lampoon him a little bit in the beginning of the crossover hair, deflating him a little bit, kind of puncturing the whole stoic semi thing. But this is kind of who he is. This is, as you say, he's older. He's got real responsibilities. He's got a community to protect. He's got people that he cares about that he needs to take care of. He is not the kind of guy who is 
going to, like you say, go to Bangkok Pride. He is the kind of guy who maybe has some internalized homophobia that he's dealing with. Definitely has some internalized homophobia that he's dealing with. He is that guy who is trying to do the right thing all the time. And so often the right thing means him subsuming his actual desires in some kind of idea of him denying himself being what's best for the community. And one of the things that the crossover brings forward, particularly in the person of Pat, who is diametrically opposed to the idea of subsuming himself for anybody. He only does it for Pran and only like grudgingly. But to put somebody like Pat, who is just loud and proud and just completely does not care about any ideas of masculinity or propriety or anything like that and put that character in conversation of any kind with Poopa. It's so delightful to watch that happen because, of course, Pat immediately gloms onto him. He follows him around like a duckling. He imprints on him. He's like, oh, yes, Stern Daddy, I really, really like this vibe that you're giving off here. I'm just going to follow you around and bother the fuck out of you. I think it was when Keqing, apologist, who said that Pat's entire job in the special is to terrorize the local elder gay. I love it. Pat and Pran, they both looked at Poopa, looked at each other, and then both said at the same time, Wood. I did see that. That was funny because it's true. They hang a lampshade on it. Uh, two points. One, when Pran runs into Poopa for the first time, him really having like a gay boy moment. <laughs> like the whole like slow motion turnaround, like gasping gay boy moment. He's read the, the diary and he's like, I get it. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> And then to have Pat's moment come where, because Pat's flirtation language is competition. So, of course, he basically challenges Poopa to a duel in the form of a drinking contest. And then they wake up shirtless next to each other and think that they might have maybe done something. They definitely did some stuff. They made out just a little bit. They kissed a little bit. But I I loved that. I loved that they were both really into him. Like, it was clear that they were both attracted to him. It was very gay and very fun. But also, they were just like, no, I get it. They they both looked and they were just like, Tien, I get you. I understand why you live in this village with (laughs) running water. And you have to sleep under a mosquito net every night. I get you. I understand you. Because for this man, I would do these things. Like, they get it. (laughs) It's kind of delightful. I like how when Pran first gets to the village and Poopa passes out, Tian runs up and Pran's like, who are you? And Tian's like, no, who the fuck are you? And like, (laughs) if Tian had been allowed to have a knife, 
Pran would have been stabbed at that point. Fully stabbed. <laughs> like, who the fuck are you and why are you talking to my man? <laughs> Tian lives in the village because he doesn't want anybody else to see Poopa. <laughs> because he knows the minute any of these whores take a look at his man, it's going to be a problem. In terms of the serious stuff, so they've shown up to convince them to sign these papers. Going into this, Pat and Pran are fighting a little bit because Pran feels guilty. Part of this journey for him was maybe seeing like if he actually needed Pat as much as he does. And he learns very quickly that he is not at his best without Pat around. It's funny because Pat always knew this. Pat seemed to know already, like he says it in like episode five of Bad Buddy, that he was not at his best when Pran was gone. But Pran wants to prove he doesn't need Pat's help. And when Pran shows up to try and convince him to sign, Tian's like, fuck yeah, I wrote the diary so people would maybe want to become teachers and appreciate what I have out here. Absolutely. Poopa's like, no, y'all not going to present me as some lovesick fool on your little stage. And then Pran tries to talk to Poopa a couple of times and fails massively at it. Tries to lie to Poopa, and then Pat blocks the shit out of that by <laughs> calling out the bullshit right away. Because he's pissed at Pran for running off without him. So he's sabotaging some of Pran's efforts. And it isn't until the two of them start working together that they actually start making any fucking progress because that's who they are. I think there's also like a really valid point to the fact that Pran, he tries to talk to Poopa about it at first and Poopa is not having it. You're right. But one of the reasons that Poopa is not having it is because he's looking at these kids and he's thinking, these kids do not understand me. These kids have no idea of what my life is like. These kids have no idea of what our lives are like. These kids have never faced any kind of serious challenge. These are two dumb kids. I'm not going to give them time of day. They don't get to tell my story. And then by the end, the thing that actually gets Poopa to agree to let them tell his story is Pran actually dropping the bullshit, as you said, and saying to him, You think I don't know what it's like to feel insecure? You think I don't know what it's like to feel like my partner deserves better than me? You think I don't know what that feels like? Oh, believe you me, I know what that feels like. And because at this point, Poopa has spent an enormous amount of time with Pat, he's like, okay, yeah, maybe you do understand what I'm going through. And the way that that works out in the end, and I mean, we're kind of skipping back and forth through the story at this point, but the way that that works out at the end is Poopa saying, okay, you get to tell my story, but you have to tell my story because you understand me. His condition for signing off on them doing the play is that they play the roles of him and Tian because they understand him. I thought that was really a really great way to follow that thread through the story. I really enjoyed that part. 
I like the subtle way Alf played with our expectations about who would identify with who. Like, they made Tien and Pran resemble each other. Tien was like, fuck this twink right away as soon as Pran showed up. But then, like, Pran <laughs> helps him. Pran helps him in the class, and Tien softens very quickly to Pran. Because of how physically macho Pat is, like, there's this expectation that he and Pupa are going to be super similar to each other. And there's an interesting, subtle commentary that Alf does there in that it's the more creative one who's way too close to his mom, who's more like the hyper-masculine dude, because both of them are masking in their lives. Like, Pupa is hyper-masculine because that's what's expected of him. And, like, people pick at Pupa about this a little bit, but he is trying to live up to the role that he is told he's supposed to fulfill. And Pran also suffers under the expectations of who his mom expects him to be. And it's interesting for me that Alf, over the course of these three episodes when they're all together, Alf says Pran and Pupa have more in common because they are carrying so much homophobia on their shoulders. And that's why the two of them probably understand each other best. Using the Yaoi tropes again, a talk about who's the semi and who's the uke in the story in terms of who's the pursuer and who's the pursued. And if you look at it, like, then you can clearly see that it's Tian and Pat who are aligned because Pat pursued Pran and Tian pursued Pupa. They are the semis, even though it seems that Tian would be an uke. He's not. He actually pursued Pupa. So in the narrative sense, he's the semi. It's just very fun, this playing with the idea of what is a semi and what is an uke. And again, to use the yaoi terms, which you know I don't like to use because I don't really know the yaoi or rock with the yaoi. But that idea of who is pursuing the relationship, leading the relationship, like that's Tien and that's Pat. And in terms of who is being pulled along by their partner in a kind of a way, that's Pupa and that's Pran. So I do like how Off leans into this. Because again, it, it subverts expectations in a particular kind of way, but also it makes so much sense. There's two subtle things that I really want to point out, and I want to talk about them a little bit. First, Pat and Pran use titles for Tian and Pupa the whole time. And the other thing is about how nobody really knows anything about anybody in this. So, like, we're going to call them Tian and Pupa, Pat and Pran, because we're inside of these people's stories with them. But it's interesting to me that Pran and Pat never cross a familiarity line with Tian and Pupa in the brief time they're with them. They refer to them as teacher and chief only the entire time. I like that because it's a nod to their roles as adults because Pat and Pran are still kids. They're still college students. And T 
Tiana and Pupa are adults to them, but in some ways, Pat and Pran have progressed much further in their relationship than Tiana and Pupa have because they've been through more just from the nature of their whole history. And they've crossed barriers and boundaries and, and parts of their relationship that Tiana and Pupa are just confronting or haven't even confronted yet. And I like that. I liked also that interplay of the younger ones being the ones to teach the older ones something. I really like that because I feel like that's what's happening now, not just in not just in queer circles, because that's definitely happening in queer circles, but also just in terms of generalization. Like if you're not a complete douche and you're our age, well, they say our age, I'm about 10 years older than Ben, not 10, but when you've crossed a certain Rubicon in the adulting game, let's put it that way. Right now, the kids are teaching us like a whole bunch of stuff. As long as you're not a dick, like, and you remain open, the kids can teach you all kinds of shit that you never thought was possible to learn about yourself at this stage in your life. And I really like that Alf played with that because Alf's about my age. And I like that he is the kind of person who understands that the young'uns have things to teach us as well. Like we have things to teach them clearly and obviously, and we want to make a better world for them clearly and obviously. But also there's so much shit that we can learn from them when it comes to just fucking unclenching. <laughs> because that's what happens here. Like all of this is in service of Poopa just fucking unclenching. And this is what I mean about having other queer people. Like it isn't just about your boyfriend. You need queer friends. Tian blossoms almost immediately when he realizes that Pat and Pran are a couple, that they're not just friends. As soon as Pat flirts with him a little bit at breakfast and Pran shoves a spoon into his mouth, you can see Tian instantly relaxes. And it's like, oh, okay, never mind. And is more receptive to what these two are here for. And for Pupa, like, yeah, it's one thing to just be into Tian and that'd be a thing. But to have someone like Pat roaming around, actively flirting with him all the time, that also forced Poopa to reckon with who he is. Like, and it's funny because like Pat and Pran are actually closeted. They are basically like admitted to Tian and Poopa as a sort of a de facto thing. But like the two of them are away from the world where they have to hide. So they're on top of each other. They're constantly touching each other. They're flirting constantly. They're fucking in the tent 20 their, feet away from them. Look at there in a second. Look at there in a second. But they're so obviously obsessed with each other. And like Nini said, like during the rescue bit, Kempong is not in the tent with them where he's supposed to be. And so the boys are like, oh, I guess the kids decided to go stay with Pupa and Tian. Great. My foot is hurting me because I twisted my ankle, but let's get it in. And in the morning, Pat limps to breakfast asking, what's my score for last night? I love that they just fucked their way through all their problems. It's delightful. I enjoy it. One of the sad things for Tian and Poopa is they have to keep waiting for the other person to be asleep, to be affectionate with them. And that's one of the big things that I'm really glad that they start to work through. Towards the end of this. Like I'm really 
proud of Poopa for listening to the man who he loves and the person who is inspired by the man who he loves. Like, it's so fascinating. Like, like Pran ran on this whole trip thinking he was Tian, met Poopa, realized he was Poopa, and was able to reach across that gap and say, please trust me, we got you. And Poopa said, okay. There's a lot of consternation in the fandom right now about taking score between Pat and Pran about who sacrifices more, what should or shouldn't be said. I'm not particularly interested in that particular conversation. Pat and Pran love each other. They're adults. They've committed to each other. Sometimes you're going to be with other gays and you're not going to understand how they work. And you just have to accept that their dynamic is their dynamic. It's not about who wins. It's about who cares for you. And they clearly care for each other. I think part of what it is as well is, it sounds bad, but go with me on this, right? I am a great proponent of therapy. I believe in it. I am in therapy. I have been in therapy for years. I recommend therapy to everybody. But there is a certain level of therapized that I think is not necessarily good for us. And that is as somebody who believes in the power of therapy to change and save lives. I think that this idea that everything is pathologized, that you always have to be on the lookout because somebody's trying to get you in some kind of way, I think that it can be harmful to relationships and to our understanding of relationships in certain ways. Because not everything that is unbalanced or imbalanced is harmful. And I think that one of the problems that I'm having with not so much the show, but the fandom reaction to it is that, yes, Pat and Fran's relationship looks unbalanced from the outside. It probably is unbalanced in certain ways, but that doesn't mean that it's harmful. But there's this idea that because of, again, this is a, a therapized lens, that unbalanced equals harmful. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. One of the things that I really don't grok onto, and to be fair, I am very, I am a Bad Buddy fan. I am a Pat and Pran fan. I am a fan of the characters separately and together. And one of the things that I am really personally sticky and icky about is this idea in certain parts that Pat and Pran do not love each other equally or Pran does not love Pat enough or Pat loves Pran more all these ideas of particular kinds of imbalances between them. And my whole thing is, who are they and what do they need? And what do they want from each other? What does Pat actually need from Bran? Is he getting it? He absolutely is. So this idea of keeping score between the characters or keeping score in relationships in general, if you, if you broaden it out to the idea of relationships, I feel like it doesn't serve. I feel like it's reductive 
And I feel like looking at these characters through that lens is not the way that Alf is portraying these characters or wants the audience to look at these characters. Because I think that Alf is a person who is very tuned into certain ideas that he wants to portray, certain things that he wants to portray about queerness and queer community and queer relationships. And I think that to reduce probably the greatest queer relationship that he has put on screen in Pat and Pran to scorekeeping when scorekeeping is a part of their history that they have deliberately stepped away from because they were forced into it. I feel like it misunderstands what he's trying to do and say with these characters. And that's just my opinion. And I will admit 100% that I am very precious about these two particular characters. I'm very precious about a lot of Ulf characters because I feel that Ulf writes characters in a way that I understand them intrinsically. But these two characters in particular, I feel very precious about. And I feel like to see them like that in the context of somehow keeping score between them is to not see them at all. Pat only cares about one score, and he asks Pran for it directly every morning. <laughs> and that's a fact. <laughs> that's the big thing for me. Like, they were kind of having a fight, and most of it was Pran's insecurity, because Pran is a little bit embarrassed about what he's asked Pat to do for him. And they get over that almost immediately. They get to Papa and Dao, they see Tian and Pupa, and they're like, oh man, these guys are older than us, but they're like four episodes behind us. <laughs> and so we got to catch these gays up quick. And they, they instantly get over whatever their beef is and they start playing out their kinks the way they always do. They start cosplaying as Tiana and Pupa and flirting with each other. And they do in the end have a little bit of a resolution to their really not much of a fight fight. And there's two resolutions, really. The first resolution is the resolution they get in Papando, which is, look, I can't fucking live without you, and you can't fucking live without me, and we agree on that. So let's dead the shit. And they did. And it was fine. Because the shit was never really live in terms of a fight being live in the first place. They were fucking their way through that whole fight. And that's how they deal with things. And it works for them and it's fine. And then they get a second resolution that Poopa gives them a gift, which is I get to be in the open with you, even if it's just on stage. I get to be a lover in public. And it works for me. They even try to redeem Y a little bit. It's still fuck Y forever in these parts. <laughs> he doesn't drop the curtain this time. Instead, he's like, give the people the kiss they need. It's still fuck Y forever in these parts. And it's interesting, too, in terms of that particular gift. It works out in a couple of ways because Poopa gets to see a bunch of people react to their story. People are loving it. Lesbians are crying over them. 
one of the lesbians is moaning, why don't they just fuck already? <laughs> he gets to see he gets to see people love them through this play. And then this gives Pran something that he's wanted. Pran is on socials after the play, seeing people making fan vids about him and Pat, which is something that he wants. He wants to be in the open with Pat because he knows that's what Pat wants. And this is the closest they're going to get for now. And he's relieved to just see that. But again, Pat is not worried about that. He's like, oh, did good. Did you get what you want? And he's like, all right, let's stop fucking around with all this other stuff. Can we kiss as ourselves now? And they do. We've talked a lot about Pat and Pran here, and we've kind of scratched the surface on Tiana and Poopa, but I really want to get into Poopa because the main thing that the special is doing is unlocking Poopa for the audience because, like I said, all the other characters have had their arcs in the OG series that we're looking at. Only Poopa has really been holding the line, so to speak. And this is Poopa's unveiling. It's his opening. This is Poopa getting harassed by a baby gay, terrorized, actually, by a baby gay, realizing that, oh my god, the baby gays came to town and they fucked in a tent 20 feet away from us and the world didn't fucking end. So maybe I too can fuck my man and the world with it. <laughs> and then he proceeds to do just that. I really like the way Alf went about doing it. Poopa primps himself up, rents an expensive vehicle, and picks up Tien. And then goes with Tien to a cute cafe and lets Tien show him off a little bit. Even if it made him a little bit nervous to be bond over in public he let tian like dress him up like he let tian take him shopping he let tian baby girl him a little bit he let tian spend a little money it was nice that felt like a big deal because he mentioned it he's like the money on one of these dishes could feed the village for a week and pop him down but he lets it go tian is actually a rich kid this is part of what poopa knows tian gave up to be with him and so when they're in Bangkok, he relents. He lets Tian dress him up like a Ken until Tian is satisfied with the look. And unsurprisingly, Tian chooses something very sleek, masculine, and comfortable for Poopa. And then Poopa shows up and meets the parents. This is a huge deal, too, because Poopa was nervous about this. He feels like he took their son from them and that he overstepped because Tian's dad was once a superior in the military. And all they say is, we're going to give you the thing that's most important to us. Take care of it. And they acknowledge his filial piety to his father. When Tian, when Pupa admits that the reason he's a forest ranger is because his dad loved that mountain and felt a need to take care of it and the people who maintain it. And they were like, respect that. And then he proposes. Okay, y'all know how I feel about the BL weddings and the BL proposals. Y'all know that I am usually kind of like sitting in the corner, like with my hands over my eyes. But this one, y'all, I was 
deep in my feelings. The tears came out. It was beautiful. I fucking loved this proposal. It was perfect. I think I liked it because it wasn't a grand gesture in front of a bunch of people. That's exactly why I liked it. <laughs> it was for them. It was Poopa finally saying he wasn't going to hold back anymore. And then they had loud, obnoxious sex in the hotel room. I just like that the loud, obnoxious sex started like way before this. Like the loud, obnoxious sex started. Like the idea of loud, obnoxious sex, of course, was started by Pat because that's Pat's entire brand. When he was walking around in the forest with Poopa, like pretending to worry about Pran when he knows Pran is going to be fine. And telling Poopa, like, I mean, I'm just going to sniff him out. And like, what do you mean you're not going to sniff out your man? Like, don't you know what he smells like? He smells so good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think that's underlined really loudly in the show. But like, Pat says it quite plainly to Tian. He's like, we don't need to go roaming around. Poopa's experienced and good at his job. And Pran's really smart. We should really just stay here. Like, nobody believes in Pran more than Pat. Nobody. Absolutely nobody. Pat is like, listen, he's going to be fine. I'm not particularly worried about him. Like, both times, both when he was wandering around in the woods with Poopa and when he was trying to get Tian to sit his ass down and be a heart patient like he's supposed to be. Both times, he was just like, I am not worried about Pran. Can we just focus on what the real problem is here? The real problem here is that your man is going unsniffed. Y'all are having a fight that y'all don't need to be having. I loved Pat's whole energy in Papandau. He was just like, I'm just going to vibe. I'm just glad to be here. I like being able to be out in the open with Pran. We are literally a million miles away from Bangkok. I can just be out here and just love on Pran the way that I feel like loving on Pran. I'm here to test the structural integrity of the teacher's house. All of that. I'm here to fucking attend and ask the next morning if I did good. He was just vibing the entire time. And then he got the bonus vibe of running into Poopa, who he has, I'm sorry, a major fucking crush on. He does. It's canon. We're going to leave it at that. He brought the sex pest fairy godmother energy to Papandau. And he's just like, listen, y'all are having a fight. Have you tried fucking about it? I have found that to be a very, <laughs> I found that to be a very helpful method of solving problems. Y'all should just fuck. Give him a good old sniff. He smells real good. Have you noticed that? And it works. Like, Poopa at first is like, oh my God, get this kid away from me. Pat said, Vic is not magical. It doesn't fix you. But you look like you could use a little bit of a stress release. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not wrong. And I love that despite the fact that Poopa spends the entire time being like, oh my God, child, get away from me. You are so annoying. The minute Pat leaves, he's just like, okay, I'm going to try what the kid said. And he does it. He goes back to all of their most romantic moments that he downplayed previously and gives them to Tian. Tian doesn't even know what to do with it at first because they've been so cold for a while. He takes Tian back to the waterfall 
And he's just like, you said that I sneaked to look at you and I did, but I ain't sneaking now. I'm a look. And then he goes further than that. He said, not only am I going to look, I am going to make sure that you get a good look. Take a good hard look. And like, like you said at first, Tiana's like, what is happening here? Because Poopa is being so open, which I don't think he's ever been before. And like Poopa was kind of manipulative about it because he made Tian relent. And so Tian thought he was being like punished at first. Like Poopa was teasing him because Tian's never made his attraction really quiet. And then they finally get the stern dicking they've been needing. And Poopa steals a line from the kids. What's my score for last night? It was so fun. And Tiana's just like, you're what? Like, Tiana's fully enjoying this. And I love that for him. Because one of the things I think people forget throughout the course of A Tale of Thousand Stars is that the Tiana who starts the tale, he's sexy. Tiana, at the beginning of the story, he's got this edge to him, this sexy edge. And that kind of gets whittled away a little bit in Pop and Dow, but that's still who he is. And I like that at the end of the tale, when we get here to the epilogue, that he gets to be that again. He gets to pull out that sexy edge that is part of him and use it on his man. Like he baby girls him, he takes him shopping, and then when he looking all nice, he leans into him and is be like, you're real handsome. Do you have a boyfriend? And I'm just like, this is Tian. This is the Tian that I remember. And then he pushes Poopa on that bed and he's like, I've been waiting for five years. I'm about to get what's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Poopa's like, what are you doing? He's like, don't worry about it. 24. <laughs> he's like, don't worry about it, baby girl. I'm going to take care of you tonight. <laughs> and I love that. I love that so much. Poopa's like panicked about it for a minute. And he's like... He decides he's like, let go, let flow. He's like, all right, this is how you want it. And Tian's like, uh-huh. And he's like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it so much. I love that at this stage of his life, Poopa just learns to like, you know what? He's like, sometimes you just got to unfucking clench. And he just, he lets it all go. I don't usually like talking about sexual positions around here because... Of the way people project onto them. But I really like the implication in the final scene that this might be the first time Poopa really switches with Tian in a way that's also him emotionally letting go. Because you do have to unclench if you want to enjoy that particular act. In more ways than one! <laughs> it works really well because of the proposal. Like Poopa's putting it all on the line. He's actually putting himself on the line and he's going to be a complete partner to Tian. And it's also going to relent and let Tian have some of the things that he wants. Like Tian is happy in Papandao. He doesn't hate their lives there. He just says, I want you to come home and see my parents once a year. It's important to me. I just want you to come down for that. And when we're here, let me treat you nicely. Like, even if their lives aren't going to always be there, like, Tian may someday have to take care of the responsibilities of his parents getting older. But I feel better about them facing that now as two people 
who are fully committed to each other than Hoopa's whole waiting for the other shoe to drop thing all the time. I just really liked getting to see Poopa just be. We never get to see him just be. Once like he internalizes what Pat and Pran say to him, at every point from then, what we see is him getting to just be. Yeah, in a slutty way, which I personally enjoy. But also just not worrying so much about what the things he's doing say about him. And yeah, there are like moments of that, like when they get to the play and the curtain goes up, you see him starting to like freak out a little bit. But as the play goes on, he relaxes. I like that he leans into both the relaxed energy and the slutty energy. Because I feel like the slutty energy is incredibly important. Like one of the things that I really enjoyed about the final episode of the crossover was that mosquito net moment. Because oh my god, finally! That's so many things. That's Alf acknowledging that he was maybe slightly too precious with their sexuality in a tale of thousand stars. That's Alf acknowledging that maybe yeah. They should have kissed there. That's also Poopa acknowledging a bunch of stuff. That's also Tien getting to recast those moments in his mind. I also love that Alf basically gave them the bad buddy post credit scene. No, everybody's saying that. But to me, I just remember that the Tale of Thousand Stars post credit scene wasn't sideways either. Like, they wrestled in that Tale of Thousand Stars post credit scene. Like, Tien had to ask for the dick, but he got it. I'm just very satisfied by the outing this time. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think that a lot of the sturm and drang around it is because of these ideas, again, once again, these ideas about balance and feeling like it was maybe unbalanced between Pat and Pran and Tien and Pupa. But I don't think those ideas of balance are relevant to what Alf is trying to do here. I think that using Pat and Pran, who are a solid, established couple who we know are pulling through anything because we've seen their future already, using them as a conduit or a catalyst or a support to pull Tiana and Poopa through a hurdle that could break them i was fine with it in the end like i went through a lot of like you know i mean you know because you were in these discussions with me and you and the clowns like sort of pulling through like how we feel about this everybody else is having a difficult time i was vibing so hard for like for like two weeks everybody else is like oh i don't like this episode like everybody was mad after episode three me i thought that episode was great like I hate how long they were lost in the woods. I'm like, well, that was the whole point. They were lost in the woods. They were all circling around an issue, and the issue is really simple. Like, just sit still and let other people find you, because that's what you need to do, baby gay. Sometimes it's sit still so we can fucking find you and help you. <laughs> all right, let's talk about the actors. Watching these four get to vibe together, I want to see it. And not just the four of them vibing together, but the pairings, because they gave us like a mix and match. So they gave us every single pairing that you could get out of these four actors. 
and everyone was delightful and delectable. And I enjoyed every single one of them, but I particularly enjoyed pairing Ohm with Earth. I really liked the pairing of Nanon and Mix. And I don't know what we need to do to see those two work together again, but I would like to see the two of them take on meaty characters together. I mean, they're going to be in the jungle together. Are they? Well, well, well. Yeah, maybe you might have to watch the jungle. (laughs) Ben might have to watch a straight show. No, we just did that. It sucked. (laughs) I loved mixing this. Like, we've seen Mix and Earth together a couple of times, and you talked about this during episode two. Their drunken walk home together felt like Poopa and Tien, not Jim and Wen. They made it feel so different, even with similar framing, even with similar camera work, even with the same actors and the same director. They made that moment feel completely different from Jim and Wen's moment doing the same activity. And I, hats off, I bow down. I appreciate actors. Y'all know that. I like how all four of them managed to make their dynamics feel lived in. Like Pat and Pran felt settled. Like they have some long-term difficulties to deal with, some of which are never going to go away. But it was kind of interesting for me knowing that they're rock solid by the end of BB-12 that you can see them starting to get there now where Pran is nervous that this can't work forever because Pat is too loud. He needs to be loud about stuff. But like you can see the signs here of them giving themselves openings here, like with the play, with Pat going home to his dad later and giving him the liquor that Pran got in Singapore. Loudly climbing through Pran's window. When he comes back to Bangkok to go play with his guitar in his room. Pat needs to be loud. Pran knows Pat needs to be loud. And the journey that they're setting off on through this special, I can't even say that it culminates in Bad Buddy 12 because it doesn't. It continues in Bad Buddy 12, but it culminates at some point in a future that we don't get to see. And... There's something to be said about Alf putting that way, way off and the things that he wants to say to the baby gaze and the elder gaze. Oh, man. I've been feeling Alf lately like Moonlight Chicken like unraveled something in me. And going back to some of his earlier works in the light of Moonlight Chicken, because part of the whole point of the crossover and of crossovers in general, but in this particular crossover is intertextuality. When we were talking about Bad Buddy, when we were like thicking the things of Bad Buddy, we were talking about text and subtext and metatext working together to tell this story. And the thing that didn't become a part of that story, there were hints of it, mostly in the Pa and Ink storyline. But the thing that was hinted at, but not really fully grasped onto was intertextuality, like the conversation that different pieces of art are having between themselves. 
And one thing that this special, that the crossover delves into now, is the intertextuality. I particularly like it because you have two leads interacting with each other. And I find that sometimes we can get a little too archetypical about the leads of shows. By forcing the audience to consider who Pat and Pran are relative to Tian and Pupa, it forces you to revisit how you've been viewing them the whole time. Like Pran thinking that he was Tian and us maybe getting a little too caught up in that. Because like we called it at the end of the first episode. We're like, why does he look so much like Tian? That feels off. And it was off. Oh, I wasn't trying to make a pun there. He's not like Tian. Like as soon as I saw that, I'm like, why would they compare him to Tian? He doesn't feel like Tian to me. I was right. And so... We get to the end of this whole shebang, and I am having a blast. Like, I'm watching people having to sort themselves out. Like, did I like this? Did I not like this? I was drinking a mojito, having a good time after this ended. I was drunk at the reception, hanging out with some lesbians. I mean, in the end, isn't that the place that you want to be? I feel like it all worked out super well. And one of the reasons that it worked out super well is that these two stories had to be in some ways told together. And yeah, one got a little subsumed to the other, but that's the way that it had to be at this point in time. I think it was pragmatic. Yeah, I think if we had caught up with them and done this crossover at a different stage in each of their relationships a different problem would have come to the surface and maybe a different arrangement of the two couples might have happened. And that's also something that we need to think about in terms of the specifics of when in the story narrative and the timeline of the stories that I've chose to set this particular crossover. When it comes to Alf, I'm always thinking about what he's trying to do. Because one of the things that has been very clear to me throughout his oeuvre, but particularly in Bad Buddy, is that he is always going to tell the story that he wants to tell. He's not overly concerned about making it fit into certain narrative structures. He's not overly concerned about making it fit into audience expectations. He wants to tell certain stories, and that's what he's going to do. And that was made very clear to me with Bad Buddy 12. Because that defied every narrative expectation, every audience expectation, to speak a truth that Alf had on his spirit. The other thing for me, this is the part where I'm get a little bit grumpy again. It is expensive to make television. Like the biggest thing that stands out to me with all of our sky is how stripped down all of it looked. Like they filmed in like one or two locations at most, it felt like half the time. And they had really short filming schedules and everybody had to be good very quickly. It was not a lot of run-up time. It feels like people just brought whatever they still had left from the last performance and they just ran with it. Everybody had to be really good and it's expensive to film on that mountain. And so Alf needed to justify that particular crossover by using the most potent talent he had. Like there's a huge bad buddy fandom. There's a pretty solid contingent of people who like a tale of thousand stars and for tale of thousand stars to get something good. He needed to merge the bad buddy budget 
with the Thousand Stars budget. But also, they didn't want to touch their ending. Which is why he sets Bad Buddy before its ending. But Tian and Poopa are only at the beginning of their romance. When we leave them, they have more work to do. So they can have an epilogue story that really hammers into some really interesting stuff, which we just spent the last hour or so talking about. But it's done really efficiently. Like, for the most part, we all seem to enjoy our sky. And they manage to do that with their limited budget. Like, Pat and Pranner in a different room, because it's probably cheaper to use this room. There's less people in Pop Pandal this time. O is running around in the background as an extra. Wasn't he the damn director of the Quan and Rium play? Shh, don't pay attention to that. A bunch of guys are running around with masks on. That's probably just crew members. I did sort of love that chewing gum and string energy that these productions can bring. That is really sort of the heart of the Our Sky franchise. I feel like I like that because it, to me, that means it's for the art. If you're going to do this on chewing gum and string, it's because you really fucking care. Like if you're going to do a story like this on string and chewing gum, it's because you really want to tell this fucking story. And in the end, that's where I land on the vast majority of our sky too. So what's our final verdict on our sky then? Worth it? Not worth it? Before we get to our final verdict on our sky, we didn't give our final verdict on the crossover. Oh, it's a 10. It's a 10. It's a 10. <laughs> it's, it's a 10. 10. Let's, just, let's just let it go. Let's let it go. It's a 10. It's a 10. Right? It's a 10 for drama and a 10 for crack because what is more cracky than a crossover? It's so, it averages out to a 10. It's a 10. Have I got quibbles with it? Yes. Do they, in the grand scheme of things, matter to my enjoyment of it? Absolutely not. It's a 10. Point blank, period. It didn't waste my time. They set out a really interesting premise. What if Tian publishes diary? And what if lonely queer looking for meaning and community Pran found it. What if he met them? What do they do if they meet each other? Like they followed through on that in a way that gave us so much to talk about for two weeks. And it was fun seeing the whole fandom come alive and see people revisit characters. It was fun seeing people change their opinions on Poopa and even Earth and Mix as a result of watching this. That was so much fun. It was delightful. It was enjoyable. It was meaningful. It was narratively enjoyable, at least for me. It was a 10. I loved it. And one of the things that I love most about it is that Pat gets to lick Pran's finger this time. Oh my god. I mean, it's just the sluttiness of it all. Pat gets to lick Pran's finger. Poopa gets to touch his titties in a sexy kind of way. They get to make out with that damn mosquito net. And I enjoyed every single second of it. I laughed. I cried. I felt warmth deep inside. All that said, in terms of the overall, let's give an overall score for our Sky 2. Ben, what do you think? With the caveat that 
you should only really engage with the R Sky content if you liked the original show. It's a nine. Like I didn't like Vice Versa, and I didn't like Star in My Mind when I watched them the first time. And so everything I didn't like about those shows was present in their R Sky offerings. I don't think it's very fair of me to be especially mean about their R Sky offerings when they are in line with what the audience has been taught to expect. And if the audience likes that, more power to them. But for the six shows that I genuinely liked, I had a good time with these. Like the weakest shows in this that I had a hard time with in the front end were A Boss and a Babe and Never Let Me Go. And I really liked what JoJo did with Never Let Me Go. And I thought that A Boss and a Babe actually had a really interesting story this time. But I loved The Eclipse, and I thought Golf was great in this outing. I thought the cast was great in The Eclipse outing. And I felt like that about Bad Buddy and Tale of Thousand Stars. And I felt like that about My School President. I had a great time. It gets a nine overall. Like, there are quibbles. It's not always the best thing. And it forces you to maybe look back at a show and alter the way you felt about it. And if you'd rather lock the show in a mental prism of where you last left it, maybe don't watch these offerings. But if you grow and change and you kind of want to imagine what your characters like, if they also grow and change, then maybe it's worth checking out for you. It's a nine. Highly recommend it. For you, the score is always about a recommendation. For me, it's always about, do I like this? How much do I like this? And for me, for the vast majority of our sky, I fucking loved it. So I also give it a nine. I don't have any caveats about recommending it to anybody or anything like that. I just had, for the most part, a whale of a fucking time. And so it's a nine. I enjoyed myself. So kind of in our own form of intertextuality, hearkening back to our season two electric boogaloo episode of the spring series and talking about sequels. So Ben, after our Sky 2, how are you feeling about sequels? Enthusiastic? I mean, come on, man. Like, this was fucking good. We need to think about how these characters stay together. That can be so rewarding to think about, and it's good for the audience to think about it. I hope we see Pat and Pran in 10 years after their little sprout has blossomed and maybe they're considering something else. I'm totally down to return to characters every couple of years for check-ins. That totally works for me. And I think that there is value in transitioning the types of stories we tell with characters over time because they're going to face a variety of situations over time. So it can be so, so rewarding for us as viewers to go on those new journeys with them. How do I feel about sequels? Again, it's the same way I always feel. I feel like when there's stories still to tell, I'm ready to see it. I'm ready to hear it. 
And if I feel like there isn't anything left to say, then I'm not interested. That's largely where I landed with the Our Sky episodes, for the most part, where I felt like there was story left to tell. I thoroughly enjoyed getting that story. And then those, like, star in my mind, where I felt like there was no story, I was really interested. So do I feel pumped about sequels and the whole idea of following these boys into the staying together part of things? Yes, that's something that I'm always going to enjoy. And if that means conflict, I am fine with that. I enjoy watching them navigate that, whether the conflict is minor or major. I am having a blast with that in my mind. And I can't wait for our Sky 3. That is going to wrap us up on the Our Sky 2 episode. Y'all are going to hear the edited version of this, but I just want y'all to know that we've been talking for three hours and we've been having a great time. See y'all in the next one. Say bye to the people, Ben. Welcome back, my boyfriend. Bye. <laughs>